All right, well, good morning to everybody. We have, uh, we have voice amplifications tonight. I hope that the folks on, uh, on Zoom can hear us too. Good morning, folks on Zoom, uh, whoever ye might be. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, if there are any guests with us online, uh, welcome to Wayside. This is, this is fun to have you worshiping with us this morning, even, even online. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. This is a fantastic passage. Let me just set it in context a little bit. That, that's always important. Context uh, helps us understand meaning. So last week, we looked at, at faith and hope and love, these, these three great characteristics of what I called last week a convincingly Christian life, faith, hope, and love. They're the same three we see in Paul's writings as well. This week... If you want to think of it in a, a, a technical analogy, a technological analogy, it's like the author is going to double click on this concept of hope. So we looked at faith, hope, and love. Now we're going to really drill down on this, this idea of hope. And in doing so, the author is going to wrap up a section of exhortation that started in chapter 5, verse 11, that goes all the way through uh, what we're seeing today. And so he's going to teach us a little bit. There's going to be some explanation, but really this is going to bring to a close uh, this, this long section preceding some of the, what's called the solid meat or the deeper teaching that we're going to get into in chapter 7, 8, 9 in the first half of 10 that the author told us about at the beginning of chapter 5. So this, what we look at today, especially the end of it, is going to set the stage for these next several chapters pertaining to the priesthood of Christ, his high priesthood, uh, and again, what, what the author of Hebrews calls maturing, or I'm sorry, solid food for a maturing believer. So this is going to be good uh, today and in the weeks to follow. So I, I want to point out something, this probably seem really obvious, but sometimes verses are challenging in that they're difficult to understand, they're difficult to interpret. There just are some. Uh, a couple weeks ago, when we looked at the warning passage in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, that's a difficult passage to interpret, all right? But then there's other passages that are difficult in a different sense. They're difficult, uh, not, not necessarily to understand, but to apply in our lives. We can walk away fully comprehending what it's telling us, but it's very difficult to live in light of that. And really, I would say impossible outside of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And for me, this latter category of being difficult to apply, uh, one of the verses I think of is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. That's going to come up on the screen. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 15, he tells us, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, I can't tell you how often I hear this listening to podcasts and and other people's sermons and really well-intentioned pastors and evangelists that, that, that quote this to Christians. But I want to point out something, however, that before you can give the reason for the hope that you have in Christ, we have to first understand what that hope we have in Christ is. We, we have to have a solid understanding of our hope before we can give the reason for that hope. I hope, I hope that makes sense. The author of Hebrews had a pastoral heart. He knew that this mattered to the people he was writing this letter to. And I got to tell you, it matters to each and every one of us. Okay, Knowing what our hope is, is, is absolutely crucial to living the life in Christ that we're called to live 
particularly in light of the hardships we're going to face, and specifically in light of the fact that we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I've got a, a, a case in point that I want to share with you. Just a couple days ago, I got a text from one of our, our, our biggest supporters when we moved down here to church plant. He was a friend up in, uh, with our men's Bible study in Fort Worth. And he just was, he doggedly encouraged us. I mean, he would send texts and he'd respond to our update emails. And he would just always had these incredibly encouraging things to say. He prayed for us when we needed prayer. He financially supported us. Uh, he and his wife, he and his family. And uh, I got a text from him just a, a couple days ago. And he said, he goes, you know, something's happened. I, I've taken a fall. And, um, but I, I'm hoping that, you know, I get over this in the next couple of days and then I'm going to rally back around with you. We're going to talk about some ways to support you guys. Uh, and I got uh, a call from his wife this morning and she said, uh, this all happened very quickly. Uh, but he got up, uh, several nights ago to get a drink of water. He tripped, he fell, he hit his left rib cage. He did some damage, but they didn't think it was very bad. Uh, that developed into sepsis, and very quickly he uh, he went down a uh, hill from there. And they're not expecting him to live beyond today. Uh, so I'm I'm I was on the phone before the service today, and he's a relatively young guy. I mean, comparatively speaking, because we all think we're going to live to be a hundred years old. So in that sense, he's relatively young. But this all happened very fast. But when I was talking to his wife out here on the Oaklawn this morning, and his daughter, they have one daughter. Uh, I had the privilege to pray for them, but just listening to them speak about their dad reminded me of how important it is to know where our hope is in this life and to know what our hope is in this life and to not get that confused with pseudo hopes or pseudo sources of hope. Okay. And the author of Hebrews, he knew this. He had a pastoral heart. These people were facing persecution. They were facing really difficult things, even death. He wanted this flock of Hebrew Christians to understand the hope that they had in Christ so that they would be encouraged, strongly so, to persevere through hard times. And we saw this last week in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. I think we actually have a slide for... Chapter 6, 11 through 12. And we desire, the author writes, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, whether that's the end of this life or when Jesus comes back, the end of the age, so that, here's the purpose, you will not be sluggish, lazy, slow, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And today we get to see an example of just that kind of person who inherits the promises. In the book of Hebrews, and you guys need to know this, and you need to grab hold of this, this hope that we're talking about that shows up so often throughout Hebrews is never just a subjective feeling. It is always an objective reality that we can take hold of. And that is so important because the way we talk about hope sometimes betrays what we think about hope. And sometimes the way I, and I use hope in this kind of, kind of casual, flippant sense all the time. Well, I hope it doesn't rain this morning. Uh, that's not what hope is in the book of Hebrews. It is never just a subjective feeling. It is always an objective reality. And that's what we're going to look at today. If our hope is just a wishy-washy feeling, 
and that's all we have, then we won't get very far in this Christian life, in this heavenly calling. But Christian hope is an objective reality so that we can take hold of it. We can grab onto it. In today's passage, we see that our hope is in God himself. In his age-old promises and in their permanence throughout the ages. Our hope is in God himself, in his age-old promises, and in the permanence of those promises throughout the ages. So first, the promises of God give us hope. Let's look at the promise of our hope. Look at verses 13 to 17. So here in this part of the passage, we are encouraged by two unchangeable things, the author tells us. We are encouraged by two unchangeable things, God's unchangeable promise and God's unchangeable oath. In verses 13 through 15, we see an example of God's unchangeable promises from the life of Abraham. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. The quote uh, that we just read in, in verse 14, that quote, comes directly out of Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. And that is when God reaffirms his promises to Abraham based on the patriarch's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Y'all remember this story, maybe. Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is willing to sacrifice his, his, his one and only son from Sarah, the child of promise, the child through whom all God's promises were to come. And, and he's willing to sacrifice this, this child of promise. Um, God had promised land, seed, and blessing. That word seed just means descendants. So when we see this, uh, uh, land, the land of Canaan, seed, multitude of descendants, that Abraham would be a father of many nations, and then blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the families, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Remember this, the promise that he gave? But in the... in uh, uh, we see God reiterating. If you go back, and I did this this last week, if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 12, where we meet Abraham, and you just read all the way through chapter 22, in chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, 21, and 22, God reiterates over and over again these promises he's made to Abraham. Uh, in Genesis chapter 21, we see the miraculous birth of Isaac. He's born to his 90-year-old mother, Sarah. We see a miraculous birth, the, ch the birth, the child of promise. And in the very next chapter, so we see, be we see God beginning to fulfill his promise to give Abraham a multitude of descendants. Abraham's mind is blown that God actually made good on this promise. Where I'm beginning to see the the realization of what God has told me, what God has promised me. And then in the very next chapter, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, the child of promise. Think about that proximity. <laughs> Think about what happens in Genesis 21 and what Abraham must have felt. Yes, God is good. He's faithful. He's going to make good on his promises. He's going to act in accordance with his word. Look, like my 90-year-old wife just had a baby named Isaac. Isn't that funny? It's also amazing. 
right? That's what Sarah did. She laughed. That's what Isaac's name means, right? So in the very next chapter, God says, okay, the young, the young lad, I want you to take him up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Oh, by the way, the mountain is the same mountain that 1,800 years later, God the Father would take his only begotten son up onto and sacrifice. But in chapter 22, ultimately Abraham obeys. And we all know the story. This is why Abraham is the absolute pinnacle of faith from a human perspective in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? He, he sets the example. He obeys because he ultimately trusted that God would fulfill his promise, even if it meant that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead to do it. And we see that later on in the book of Hebrews. He trusted God that deeply. And so he was willing to obey. He was willing to go God's way. The birth of Isaac and then his safe return from the sacrificial altar, because remember God said, nope, you take your firstborn, only begotten son back, and I'm going to provide a sacrifice in his place. And he put a, a, a male sheep, a ram, uh, entangled in a thicket, and that's who got sacrificed in place of his son. Those are other sermons for other days, but that is, that is spectacular. But, but when he not only saw Isaac born, but then however many years later, when he was able to take him back off of the sacrificial altar in one piece, uh, we see these as initial pledges of the full realization of God's promises. In other words, verse 15 in our passage today is true in that Abraham, after waiting patiently, whether that just refers to chapter 22 with the incident on the mountain, or whether that's the 25 years from the point God made the promise to the point that he gave birth or his wife gave birth to a son, whichever or both. He waited patiently, and subsequently he obtained the promise. That is true. But now if you read ahead in Hebrews, you might say, wait a minute, Ben. How can that be true if when I get to chapter 11, it, it, says, that, uh, it says that Abraham and all these others died. This is Hebrews eleven thirteen. They died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Well, folks, the fact is, that the full realization of God's promise to Abraham was still yet future and still is yet future. But those initial pledges, that initial fulfillment was a blessing. So it was true that he obtained God's promises, but it's also true that he died without fully receiving the full realization of those promises. Make sense? All right. So, Abraham knew that God would make good on his promises, even if the full realization wouldn't happen in his lifetime. Just sit on that. Just sink into that. That even if the full realization of what God has promised you does not happen in this lifetime, on our timetable, we can still trust God. That he will ultimately make good on every promise, every oath he's ever made. In verses 16 and 17, we actually see an example of God's unchangeable oaths as well. The unchangeable promise, now the unchangeable oath we're going to talk about. Look at verse 16 and 17. For men swear by one greater than themselves. We, you know, so help me God. You know, put my hand on the Bible. Will I tell the whole truth? Nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's an example of what we do as humans. We, we swear by one greater than us, okay? But then it says, and with them... 
An oath is given as confirmation. An oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. If there were no witnesses there, uh, I'm just going to give you my word. I'm going to make an oath that this is true, and you're going to, it's going to be the end of the dispute. We're going to move on, okay? This is how humans work. But then he says, in this great comparative language, he says in, in verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, those who would inherit God's promise to Abraham, even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So again, the heirs of the promise that God is desiring so greatly to, uh, to show them the unchangeableness of his purpose. The heirs of the promise to Abraham would be all of Abraham's spiritual descendants. That would include the church as the spiritual descendants, whether you're physically Jewish or not. That would include believing saints from the Old Testament. These are the heirs of the promise. These are those who can call Abraham their spiritual father in that sense. Um, so what exactly is the oath that's referred to here? And I'm, I'll be honest with you all, when you get to parts of Scripture that are there's differing opinions on how to interpret them. I always try and, especially if, if they're significant to what we're talking about, uh, I always try and kind of unpack that. So what, what does oath mean in verse 17? Well, it's either God's oath to bless and multiply Abraham that we just saw from Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, or it could refer to what the author's about to talk about, which is God's other oath in Psalm 110, verse 4, Remember, we've seen this already. Psalm 110, verse 4, is where we see uh, God making an oath. God the Father making an oath to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that you will be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he says something specific here. He says, you will be a high priest. He says, uh, the Lord has sworn, he's making an oath here, and, and will not change his mind. Does that language seem familiar to what we're seeing in Hebrews? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, he's talking to Jesus, the Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So whether or not this oath in verse 17 is referring to, um, is referring to one or the other, the, the oath to Abraham or the oath in Psalm 110, either way, the point of our passage is clear that God doesn't just make promises. He doesn't make empty promises, first of all. But he doesn't just make promises. He gladly, and think about this, folks. Think about your relationship with God and how much he loves you. He gladly gives us double assurance by swearing an oath by the most assuring reality in all of existence, which happens to be himself. Guys, he doesn't leave us hanging on what to expect. He gives us promises and then he stacks unchangeable oaths on top of them and he swears by his own unchanging nature. That's beautiful. He wants us to, to take hold of that. The promises of God give us hope because his promises and oaths are unchangeable. Uh, if you've been around Wayside for very long, then you're probably aware uh, that, that I'm not a fan of the so-called um, prosperity gospel or health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, so-called faith healers, uh, so-called seed faith. Uh, you know, it goes by a million different names, prosperity theology. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. And if, if you are and you want to talk about that, 
then I would happily sit down with you and talk to you about that. I have family members that send me emails from well-known televangelists and say, here's, here's what you need to know. Here's the, and it's so unbiblical to the point of being satanic and opposed to the true gospel, okay? I hope I didn't overstate my case on that. But if you want to talk about that, we can. But here's one of my biggest problems with that way of thinking and that way of, of reading Scripture and teaching other people Scripture. It's that the people involved in these enterprises, and they are enterprises, uh, they, um, they make use of the fact that God is a God who makes promises. I am not denying that God, our God, is a God who makes promises. I'll stand by that to my dying day. But instead of teaching people the actual promises of God in Scripture, they mislead people into thinking that God has promised them health and wealth and prosperity and healing and whatever else you want to cram in there if only they would have enough faith in Him. That is a problem. And I'm not denying God's miraculous ability to do anything. Certainly not healing. I believe God can raise people from the dead. I believe He can do all these things. But to, to sell that to people as, as, a, as a promise on which to stake your life, and then when it doesn't happen, it's your problem. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't give enough much money. All this, that's garbage, okay? If only we have enough. This has led, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I just saw a great documentary on this, but this has led to untold numbers of well-intentioned Christians walking away from the Christian faith, walking away from God, walking away from Jesus Christ because of what? Unmet expectations. I thought this was promised. I, I built all my expectations in life around this happening, and it didn't happen. So either it's my problem and I'm going to go away feeling pitiful and, and like I didn't have enough faith, or it's, or it's this guy and he sold me a uh, this whole Christianity thing's a, a, a bill of false, a false bill of goods. But either way, people have walked away, and that's a tragedy, and that's a tragic misuse of spiritual authority in the church. And, and I wish I could do a Bible study with every person that has walked away from Christianity because of this garbage teaching, and, and do a Hebrews Bible study with them. Or you could just all get in a big conference center. Maybe it's a Zoom call with, you know, tens of thousands maybe of people, and we could just go through the book of Hebrews. People who have walked away because of this teaching that prosperity theology advocates. The author of Hebrews cares deeply for Christians. He has a pastoral heart. And in today's passage, he reminds us that God is certainly a God who makes promises and oaths and a God who keeps those promises and oaths. In fact, he even gives us added assurance by stacking, as I said, oaths on top of promises. And that's important for us to understand. Therefore, the promises of God, they should give us hope. Not for our best life now, but they should give us hope for, for a life that is beyond our imagination when we receive the full realization of all that God has promised us, all that God has sworn to give us at the return of Jesus Christ our Lord and the commencement of His kingdom. Do we really believe that God is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God? We have to. As spiritual heirs of Abraham, we definitely should. Okay? And we should know exactly what God has promised us. We need to take time, folks, to consider God's promises. 
don't flip on some channel and, and have some person calling themselves a, a preacher, a teacher, try and teach you about God's promises. Go to scripture and look at God's promises and contextualize them. Because just because it says if you raise up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. Some people have sold that as a promise and other things from the wisdom literature. And, and people do all sorts of mental, spiritual gymnastics to, to put promises on the lips of God that aren't actually promised. But he has promised a lot. In fact, he's promised more than we could possibly imagine. We just have to go in and read it and, and absorb it into our hearts and minds. We need to take time to consider God's promises and that's going to keep us from unmet expectations when we try to hold God to a promise he never made. And it will also help us take hold of our hope in Christ as an objective reality. Those are the two things that's going to safeguard us against these unmet expectations. And it's going to allow us to get, get our hands on, to grab onto the objective reality of our hope in Jesus Christ. And just consider some of the realities, and this is just a cursory glance at some of the realities that the New Testament writers associate with our Christian hope, the one that every single person in this room that has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ can claim. The New Testament writers speak of our future salvation, not just what happened when we were when we gave our life to Christ, you know, at, at the Christian camp when we were kids, that is legitimate. We were justified in Christ. We were found not guilty. We are being saved from sin through this process of sanctification. But scripture, folks, talks about a, a, a full future salvation that we have promised, that we have coming. It talks about bodily resurrection associated with our Christian hope. Eternal life, total righteousness, sharing in the glory of God in Christ. So I just like want to like the record skip, you know, from like the 90s comedy, the record skip. Like I wanted to skip right here and go, wait a minute, what? That we share in the glory of God and Jesus Christ? I'll go on. The joy of seeing other believers that have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the presence of Jesus at his second coming. Paul calls that his joy, his crown of exaltation. And just simply the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who Scripture says is our living hope. And Paul sums up our hope as he calls it the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints that are announced by the gospel and laid up for you in heaven. These are the promises of God. This is the hope that we can take hold of, folks. So I want you to just sit and soak in these promises, which came not just with an oath from God, but folks, they came through the shed blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Our hope is rooted in the unchangeable purpose of God in Christ. All right, so we have seen the promise of God's hope in the first part of our passage. Now we're going to turn to the second half where we see the permanence of our hope. Look at verses 18 through 20, our last three verses. And these are some of the most treasured verses, the, the, some of the most treasured truths in all of Hebrews, maybe all of the Bible for some people. Here we see God's purpose in giving us his unchangeable promises and oaths, his desire is to strongly reassure us that our hope in Christ is both permanent and perpetual, ongoing, never-ending. 
So first of all, our hope in Christ is permanent. Just look at the language in verse 18. This is the purpose statement. So that, this gives the reason for everything we've just looked at. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The inspired author doesn't want us to have a wishy-washy feeling of hopefulness. He wants us to take hold, to grab onto the hope that is set before us. And he tells us that God reveals his unchangeable purpose to us so that he will be, we will be strongly encouraged to do so. You know, God could do everything he wanted to do and never share it with us. Our God is a God who wants us to know what he's doing. This is not some weird mystery religion where we have to like ascend to some higher rank of wisdom and knowledge to understand what the deity is doing. We serve a God who is relational and who wants to tell us his purposes ahead of time so that as we walk through this life, we can walk through this life strongly encouraged to take hold of the hope that he is giving us. And that word, I love it. It's to take refuge. Those who take refuge that can be understood in terms of fleeing from something like the destruction of Jerusalem or take refuge can refer to fleeing to something. And in our context here, in our case, we are fleeing to someone. We're taking refuge in God himself by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We're fleeing to Christ. We're taking refuge in him and all that great imagery from the Psalms about being tucked under the shadow of his wings. And uh, he, he's like the rock of our, of our salvation, of our, ah, it's just beautiful. It invokes all these ideas. And our hope in Christ is permanent because it's based on the unchangeable purpose of God. You think God the Father's going to do a whoopsie? after he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, rise again, ascend into heaven, and sit down at his right hand, having conquered sin and death and Satan? Absolutely not. His purpose is unchangeable. And folks, our hope is also perpetual. It's everlasting because the benefits and blessings of Christ are everlasting. They're not going to run out like everything else in this life will. Look at verses 19 and 20, our last two verses. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. We'll talk about that. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author has saved the best for last. You notice he didn't say much about Jesus in the preceding verses. He saves the best for last, uh, and we see this culmination of his encouragement to the readers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The reality of Jesus having become a high priest. Guys, we need to understand here that if you double-click, I'll use that analogy again, if you double-click having become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, it opens up a wealth of, of truth, a wealth of realities about the person and work of Christ. It, it opens up the reality of his incarnation, of taking on a body, of his perfect life lived for us. It takes in the reality of his suffering and his death for our sins on the cross, of his burial, of his resurrection, of his ascension into heaven some 40 days later, of his standing before God the Father 
and then sitting at the right hand of God the Father in glory as he awaits his return to the earth to establish his kingdom. That's all just crammed into that idea of him becoming a high priest in this passage. As I mentioned earlier, these verses set the table for the solid food that the author is going to give us concerning the realities of Christ's priestly service. This is, this is solid food, and we're going to see it in chapter 7. Immediately after today's passage, we're going to see it in 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10. But for now, I just want to draw your attention to that word forever in verse 20. Folks, our hope in Christ is both permanent and it's perpetual. It's forever. It's never ending. I was trying to come up with a good way to illustrate the truth of verses 19 and 20, and I was struggling. And then I was like, wait a minute. This has its, its own illustration built into it. All right? Uh, uh, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That's the illustration for this passage. In ancient times, harbors along the Mediterranean Sea were shallow, relatively speaking. They were shallow and they were sandy. So you couldn't get big ships in the harbors and the, the, the anchor wouldn't stay. It, it would just sit in the sandy uh, ocean floor and it would never hold on. So if a storm came, you'd get tossed and blown away and shipwrecked. Okay, so you know what they came up with? You know what their technology was that they came up with? The ship would stop well outside the shallow area in the harbor and a little smaller boat would come up to it with rows and they would load the anchor onto the little ship and then that little ship would row into the shallow harbor that the big ship couldn't get into and they would take the anchor and they would bring it on shore and they would secure it to some place on the coastline. And do you know what they called that little ship in Greek? They called it the same thing that the author calls Jesus. It was a forerunner. It went before the big ship. And if that's what's on the author's mind, he already had nautical language back in chapter 2 when he said, when he warned, he said, don't, be, don't drift away. What that means is don't pull anchor. Don't let your anchor be yanked and be pulled away and capsized. And so he has this beautiful historical cultural context in his mind. Christ is our forerunner. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has gone before us to a place we could not go in the very presence of God himself to secure a place for us there. Do you remember the upper room? Where are you going? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And don't worry, I will come back and I will get you and I will take you to be with me. He's our forerunner. Through his priestly service in the heavenly holy of holies on our behalf, right this minute through his priestly service we have a hope that the author says is both sure and steadfast and it also he says it enters within the veil which is a reference to the veil that separated the holy place inside the temple or tabernacle from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the very mercy seat of God was, that room in which only one person could go on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, that is the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and only could he go in there when, he was, when his sins were covered by the blood of an innocent sacrifice on his behalf and the sins of the people were covered by the blood of an innocent sacrifice on their behalf. And you know when he went in, you know what they would do? Am I to that part yet? I don't want to spoil it. Oh yeah, here it is. On the Day of Atonement, the priests, you know what they would do? Sometimes they would tie a rope to the high priest's ankle 
so that if by some chance God found him to be unholy, unworthy to be in his presence and struck him dead, that they, the other priests, would then be able to pull him out of the Holy of Holies, drag him to the other side of the veil so that they too wouldn't have to go inside and offend the presence of God in their unholiness. And do you know what Jesus Christ does? He takes a rope, an unbreakable one I might add, and he ties it to himself, his own leg. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies, not to go quickly and come back out, but to stay. He sits down. And instead of us trying to pull him out because he might not be holy enough, he pulls us in to be with him. Spiritually, right now, we are seated in the heavenly in the heavenlies, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. And have we seen the full realization of what it will be like to be in the very presence of God? Not yet, but we will someday. And that's part of our hope as well. This is a hope that is both permanent and perpetual and one that we can take hold of through our faith in Jesus Christ. If you have taken refuge in Christ, then I hope that our passage brings you strong encouragement. I don't want you to walk away from here and start thinking about what we're going to get for lunch, and then all of a sudden forget about the strong encouragement of the incredible hope that we have in Christ. Because if we will remember this, if we will take hold, if we will hang on to the hope that God has set before us, then we will persevere in this life. I don't know what you're facing. It may be a lot more difficult than what I'm facing right now. It may be more difficult than what my friend's wife and daughter are facing this morning and in the coming days. It may not. But either way, whatever you're facing, you will persevere. And not just to make it, you will persevere with peace and with joy if you'll hold on and take hold of that hope that God has set before us in Christ. We will be spiritually fruitful as we live in light of our great hope, as we look forward to the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. Uh, In a little while, we're going to sing one of my favorite songs, And it takes its name from today's passage. And if you go to Spotify, there's two songs called the exact same thing. So this is called Anchor of My Soul by Josh White. We're going to sing that in a little bit. And I want to close with my favorite verse. I want to just leave it resonating in your hearts and minds. I love it. He sings, If I want love, I'll come to the cross. If I want life, I'll count this life loss. Anchor my soul. Don't let me drift away. If I want peace, I'll come to the king. If I want release, then you'll have to be the anchor of my soul. Don't let me drift away. Jesus, I will stay with you. Next week, we'll begin a two-month-long meal, a dining experience, if you want to put that in bunny ears, of what the author of Hebrews calls solid food, which will be a deep dive into the realities of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I hope, folks, that you're hungry uh, because it's going to be a hearty meal. And we're going to be in that through the end of May. All right, let me pray.